absolutely delighted to welcome today Dr. David Pinder, who we all know teaches at Queen Mary College at the moment. He's taught at Southampton before that. And from August, is having a big adventure and moving to Roskilde University as a professor of urban studies. So David sells himself and identifies as a, an urban and cultural doctor, more of which we need here, I think. And he's interested in <laughs> cities and how urban spaces are imagined, represented, performed and contested. His book, Visions of the City, came out in 2005, and since then he's been doing some new work on notion of mobilities, which we may hear about today, I think. So I'd like you to join me in welcoming David, who's going to present a talk called Once a Home, Art, Displacement, Temporalities, Thanks very much, Linda, for the kind introduction, and thanks a lot for the invitation to come here. It's a real pleasure to come and see some um, old friends and also hopefully meet some, uh, some new people. Um, so uh, I'm also very pleased to contribute to this theme around temporalities because it's a theme that I've been increasingly interested in and want to think through a bit more explicitly in future work. And one way that I've been interested in that theme broadly has been through a long interest in utopianism and uh, utopian visions of cities. Um, particularly as a way of imagining and uh, seeking to figure different urban futures. And a classic way of thinking about utopia is um, often as an ideal vision of a society or city which is either located in a different space, if we're thinking of the classic notion of utopia, going back to Thomas More being this kind of island elsewhere, or particularly from the 19th century on, increasingly uh, thinking about that in terms of time, so either a future or some kind of past ideal. Um, and often that's understood in terms of an effort to realise that ideal. So the utopia comes to, in a sense, lock in a sense of the future of time and space. Um, and in my own work, I've been interested in critically thinking about these urban utopias um, historically, particularly in the context of 20th century European modernism and its engagement with urban spaces. Um, but also thinking about that in the present. And I think it's also important to think of contemporary capitalism's utopias, those dream worlds of neoliberalism that Mike Davis talks about as e evil paradises. But trying to think through what does it mean to think about neoliberalism as uh, a utopia uh, with a particular conception of the city. So, and one of the things I think is very interesting to think about utopias in that way is to think about how they express also the desires, anxieties, fears, misgivings of the time they're in. Um, so one of the interesting things, I think, is less about what they might tell us about future, but actually what they tell us about uh, contemporary conditions and the difficulties of imagining a different future. Um, but also I've been interested in recovering and seeking to reclaim different traditions of utopian thought. And one way uh, I thought to do that is through this idea of interruption, where, where we might think of utopia less about locking in some notion of the future, more about interrupting a sense of inevitability, opening a space in which that future might be in question, uh, particularly supposed inevitabilities uh, might be challenged. Now, that's not my subject today, because what I'm going to talk about today is more drawing on another strand of my work, which has been particularly interested in art practice and urban politics, but there will be certain connections, as I hope to, to elaborate. And here I've been interested in artistic practices as a means of exploring and intervening in urban spaces. For example, through forms of mapping, walking, guided tours and the like. Um, and this is an art practice that's different from common conceptions of public art, where that public art often having the sense of public space as a kind of pre-designated realm into which a work is then slotted. But rather this is work which engages with space as produced and contested. It's alive to the shaping of urban spaces, including the ostensibly public, often in terms of private interests, of private profit and state power. And in some cases, this works against uh, so-called proper senses of uh, space, proper uses and meanings, to try to figure things differently. And it's in this way that I've, I've also been interested in interruption here, um, and I think there are certain connections with that uh, other exploration around utopianism. 
Because a critical interest for me, then, is how art practices might interrupt the way things go on, expose contradictions, uh, conflicts and tensions within existing arrangements. That is how they might arrest how situations are thought about, imagined, represented, opening spaces for them to be imagined and, and practised differently. And um, although I won't discuss that explicitly today, in that sense of the difference there, I think we might think of a utopian moment or impulse. Now, so my presentation today comes out of that wide set of interests, um, and it's specifically focusing on questions around mobility and this space, a highway in East London that I'm going to introduce shortly. But I want to begin by um, turning to... Marshall Berman's classic book, All That Is Solid Melts Into Air, and the last section of that book, where he tends to um, what in many ways lights at the roots of what he sees as the creative destruction endemic to capitalist modernity. That is the building of the Cross Bronx Expressway in New York City in the 1950s. He writes of growing up in the East Tremont district of the Bronx, and as a teenager seeing that neighbourhood being torn apart by, uh, under the direction of the Commissioner of Public Works, Robert Moses, shown here, as the centre of the Bronx was, in Berman's terms, pounded and blasted and smashed. Berman recalls standing with his friends on the parapet of the Grand Concourse and surveying the progress of the works and their spectacular ruins. The dynamite blasts and tremors, as he writes, the wild, jagged crags of rock newly torn, the vistas of devastation stretching from miles to the east and west as far as the eye could see. The wreckage and the tens of thousands of lives that were thereby uprooted, he describes as the products of an expressway world. For a time, Bowman notes, then, to oppose the construction of this world was to be seen as against modernity, uh, against the movement of history and progress. And yet he discusses how from the late 1960s it was confronted by another form of modernism that found inspiration, life and energy in the streets that were being destroyed by these uh, expressways. Associating these visions with the work of artists and social movements and communities in revolt, he refers to this as the shout in the street. But he also addresses the emergence in the subsequent decade of the 1970s of another modernism which was more tuned to the past and to remembering. And here he focuses on twin symbols of home and ghosts. And he writes of a modernism of ghosts. And it's with that in mind, at the end of his book, he returns to the Bronx and imagines a mural painted on the sides of the retaining wall of the Cross Bronx Expressway. Visible to all motorists, it might include, as he puts it, cross-sections of streets, of houses, even of rooms full of people, just as they were before the expressway cut through them all. But he imagines this also reaching back to earlier decades, to the height of the Jewish and Italian immigrations, through to newer waves of immigrants from Puerto Rico, South Carolina and Trinidad. And he imagines this being created in a whole variety of styles, which would... Um, from the imaginative visions that have arisen from these streets, while former residents would be encouraged to paint themselves into this picture. Berman speculates, to drive past and through all this world would be a rich and strange experience. Drivers might feel captivated by the figures, environments and fantasies of on the mural ghosts of their parents, their friends, even of themselves. Now, in this presentation, I likewise want to focus on the subjects of home and ghosts in the urban context. In this case, in relation to the construction of a more recent urban highway that was con which carved through the residential areas of northeast London during the 1990s, then called the M11 Link Road. Since entitled the A12 Eastway, it was part of what the Conservative government in 1989, in a paper... Uh, entitled Roads for Prosperity, um, announced as a massive expansion of the road-building programme. The construction through the boroughs of Leighton, Leightonstone and Wanstead was intended to smooth the, the route between the city and the motorway beyond and shave minutes off average travel times. In the process, around 400 homes were destroyed and around 1,000 people displaced. In thinking about this space, 
I'm interested in how the spaces and the times of this area were remade through this highway construction. This entailed the production and ordering of new spatial temporal rhythms, of one associated with a wider system, or what we might think of as a regime of automobility. That's to say, in the words of Stefan Baum and others, what they describe as a set of political institutions and practices that seek to organise, accelerate and shape the spatial movements and impacts of automobiles, while simultaneously regulating their many consequences. But I want to approach this particularly through, uh, from the perspective of their interruption. And firstly, I want to think about that in terms of a political interruption. For, like many urban highways that were hacked through dense urban areas and forced out residents, the M11 link road was fiercely resisted. And it became, between 1993 and 95, so it's 20 years ago, and this anniversary is partly, as I'll discuss later, why I've been interested in, in reflecting on this 20 years on, it became the site of one of the largest uh, anti-road protests in Britain. And I want to be thinking about this interruption, particularly through um, notions of home and um, the defence of home as in opposition to, to roads. But I also want to be thinking about this in relation to uh, certain art practices, as I'll discuss. And my main title, Once a Home, comes from this plaque made by the artist Paul Noble, in imitation of the official blue plaques uh, that commemorate the connection between places and... Uh, sorry... between places and a, um, and a building or a famous person or event. They appeared anonymously on the side of houses, between, um, on a number of houses, between the eviction of the residents of that house and then the wrecking ball calling. This is, uh, you can just see the, the plaque uh, between the upper windows here. As the houses were pulled down then, so were these markers of how they had once been a site of living, eating, sleeping, of emotional ties and feelings, of how they'd been made more than the material structure of the house, and how they were then unmade, emptied out, turned to rubble. This reworking, or this kind of hijacking of the iconography of blue plaques, is an example of what the critics Josephine Barry Slate and Anthony Isles call an unauthorised public art, one which foregrounds the struggle over history. And specifically one that they say... Uh, foregrounds self-organised attempts to commemorate the collective experience and unrecognised histories of the city within its fabric. So in its reference here to our heritage that it's evoking, it reaches beyond the specific house, um, and significantly Noble placed uh, these uh, one in each street, so this is not just a, a number of different houses in each street, but one in each street with that idea of a more collective heritage that's being evoked to address a sense of home on a wider community level, uh, what uh, Slater and Isles call a minor community of identification. So this is a, a, a community of, of those people who identify with this particular moment. Noble was one of a large number of artists who lived in this area. And for decades, this part of London had been threatened with demolition as the highway had been planned and rebuffed as proposals were put forward, went to consultations... Uh, there were a series of protests, public inquiries and the like. And all the while this precipitated blight uh, along this route, particularly in, in Leighton and Leightonstone, in the working and lower middle class neighbourhoods. And many artists were drawn to this neighbourhood during the 1980s by the availability of cheap and temporary housing that was made available through Acme Studios, which was um, renting out on a temporary basis houses that had been compulsory purchased by the Department of Transport. As plans for the highway finally became reality, some of the artists left or were moved out, while others joined local residents in opposing its construction through political and legal channels. And then when they failed, many turned to forms of direct action, particularly from September 1993, when the demolitions started. Not surprisingly, imaginaries and discourses of home were central to um, the mobilisation against the road that was expressed through the commonly deployed slogan, Homes Not Roads, pasted onto corrugated iron 
fences in front of wrecked houses, or unfurled on banners, or daubed across bricked-up doors and windows. This house was once a home, was also draped across um, this house in Wanstead, whose owner was um, evicted and then actually came back into the space to join squatters as part of the um, attempt to stay put. Evictions were ripping apart this community, protesters argued, as houses were being emptied, deliberately wrecked, and then bricked up again before being cleared. So the direct action campaign during this period sought to bring home the impact of construction through um, a series of imaginative stunts that centred around uh, imaginaries and discourses of home with media appeal. And one of the more famous of these was the occupation of the Transport Minister's uh, rooftop, John McGregor's rooftop, um, and this unfurling of a banner symbolically representing this motorway then being built through um, his house. Uh, or, in this case, McGregor's ideal home show, uh, shown here, um, except as if it's his, of course. The question of what legally constituted a home was critical to an early battle that did much to galvanise public opinion, which centred on this 250-year-old uh, chestnut tree in, on George Green in Wanstead, where campaigners took to its branches and built a um, tree house as part of the protests, and then delayed the construction um, uh, by gaining legal recognition of this being a house, uh, which then forced the authorities to then um, get a court order to evict the residents. Uh, partly through a, a letter being delivered to the residents of this house by the post office, and this was made as part of the case in the courts, which then resulted in 400 letters of people kind of posting to these residents um, of this tree house. The defence of this house brought together local people of all ages, so a lot of children were involved as well as um, their parents. And the violence meted out to those protesters by the security guards and the police did much to galvanise uh, public opinion. Imagination also played a crucial role in the struggles, imagination of what once was. So this is George Green once with the uh, cut and cover, the so-called cut and cover um, to tunnel underneath the green. And then it was also not just evoking a sense of what had been, but also then thinking about what could be. Creativity and play then were very much central to the use of visual cultures and artistic strategies within the protest movements. And creativity and play also took a carnivalesque form in many of the protests, including through the de Declaration of Independent Free Areas, uh, such as Leytonstonia and Wanstonia, in which residents declared themselves absolved of all responsibility to the British Crown and issued their own passports and the like. But the episode that provided some of the most striking images um, of the protests was the struggle against, sorry, over Claremont Road in Leyton during the course of 1994, until the final evictions came in November of that year. The terraced houses of this small tree-lined street were transformed through what the activist John Jordan described as a phenomenally imaginative theatre of creative resistance. Uh, and this is how the street um, had been. And then this was uh, during the protest actions. Traffic was blocked. Furniture, sculpture and stages were used to create an experimental space for living, playing and performing, which transgressed uh, boundaries between inside and outside. As the threat of evictions advanced, alternative modes of movement and communication were enabled through the rope netting that you can see uh, threaded across the uh, rooftops, but also holes punctured through the walls, internal walls of the terraced houses to allow people to move inside, and also through um, tunnels. A 30-metre-high Scaffolding was also constructed, which became one of the great symbols of the protest, but also the last refuge of protesters uh, when the evictions, the final evictions, started. And this was named after Dolly Watson, a 93-year-old resident who had lived there all her life and was refusing to move and was one of the few uh, original residents um, at the time of these, uh, when the street was being remade as part of this protest. Many of the other residents by then had um, departed. The final evictions in November 
1994, took four days involving 700 police officers, 200 bailiffs, and 400 security guards. Now, these events have been widely discussed, uh, including in studies of social movements and specifically of anti-road protests and so-called DIY culture um, in the 1990s, uh, where connections with the anti-poll tax protests, the Criminal Justice Act at the time, were very much part of the wider um, context within which these protests uh, gathered pace. The 20th anniversary of the evictions has also led to renewed interest, especially amongst activists recalling the events and posting materials online. But today I want to think particularly about the role of art coming out of this context, both in terms of the immediate struggles, but also the period of dilapidation prior to them. Doing so um, from selected angles and practices in terms of how they centre imaginatively, creatively and reflectively on home and its unmaking, uh, particularly thinking about this in terms of the temporalities as well as spatialities of home. There's considerable um, interest in artistic engagement with home recently, where home is understood, as my colleague Alison Blunt, writing with Robin Dowling, puts it, as a spatial imaginary, as a place site of uh, a set of feelings and cultural meanings and the relations between the two. And they're clear that those feelings are not necessarily positive, but also, as long feminist work has, has argued, can also be sites of, of fearfulness, anxiety, of alienation, and so on. The art historian Jill Perry, um, for example, has recently noted the remarkable visibility of the theme of home in the work of contemporary British artists, referring to a turn to the domestic in terms of addressing the activities, uh, materials and tropes of the home. Among notable examples, uh, from the same time as these M11 clashes, was from nearby Bow in East London, Rachel White Reed's Turner Prize winning house, a concrete cast of an interior of a terraced house, uh, the last standing on a, on a, on a, on a terrace um, from the 1870s. The space of a house no longer present, a space turned inside out, a ghost space that was completed in October 1993 and it sparked considerable controversy um, before it was destroyed by the council in January 1994. Even the very title here, House Rather Than Home, is, as Doreen Massey pointed out, part of the way that it defamiliarises what she calls the normal, comfortable mythologising of home in its mute filling out of the space of social relations of life, what had been air here turned solid in terms of the concrete, underlines the complexities of the meanings of home and how they're always open to contestation. And it was this uh, that allowed House to become a lightning rod for contested memories, anxieties and concerns about place, identity and housing in East London in, in that particular moment. And no, 11, no M11 Link Road protesters were amongst those who um, sought to use the controversies around this to draw attention to what was happening just down the road in Leighton, Leighton, Stone and Wanstead. The artistic practices that I'll address uh, in the remaining time are focused then under, uh, on home as it's under duress, as it's being undermined and destroyed through a deliberate process of displacement and demolition what some, um, some scholars have called domicide. It's a term from Douglas Porteous and Sandra Smith. Or more recently and more expansively, well, another colleague, Richard Baxter, writing with um, Ka uh, Catherine Brickle, uh, terms home unmaking. The first set of practices finds vivid expression in the exuberant constructions of Claremont Road that I've already introduced and also in a range of performances and actions from the campaign against the road. Here, art was aligned with political movements through what John Jordan describes as an activist aesthetics. Um, and he refers to this then as, as an art less concerned with representing political concerns, but more with using creative energy, energies to confront those issues directly, to um, enter into them, to intervene in them, to interrupt them remaking, reshaping and transforming lived situations. Um, so briefly, just to refer here then, um, we could think here of, of how on Claremont Road itself an artist house was amongst the constructions that uh, opened up to stage exhibitions 
um, and events. Not only was work made in the space of the house, but the very fabric of the house became a work. But activist aesthetics also found wider expression in, whoops, sorry, um, in the transformation of the street and its houses as art effectively became a weapon in the struggle as part of a festival of resistance. Um, as one flyer advertising weekly Sunday parties put it, Claremont Road is a not-to-be-missed ongoing work of living art. This practice then was devoted not to a defence of homes um, as previously constituted, because by this moment most of the original ten, uh, residents had been forced out. Rather, it involved remaking the remaining houses, partly to slow down the construction process, to interrupt it, to make it as expensive and time-consuming as possible, thereby to, to draw political attention to uh, this um, practice of road building and to call it into question. But it was also around reimagining what home was and could be, so the sense of also a future orientation as well as rather than simply about preservation. Um, holes punctured through internal walls here then serve not only a defensive purpose, allowing people to move between the buildings um, away from the street, but also to cut through divides between domestic units, part of an experiment experimentation with more collective ways of living in the moment. Um, something that John Jordan situates in terms of a longer history of the avant-garde, uh, in terms of, of an interest in blurring boundaries between art and life, for instance. Um, but also he contrasts it with artists like Gordon Matter Clark in the 1970s, who was cutting through buildings in spaces like the Bronx uh, as forms of experimentation. Or indeed, more recently, or contemporaneously, uh, Rachel Whiteread. Um, but in this case, art becoming protest, sculptures becoming barricades, uh, the category of art itself being challenged and reworked, along with those ideas of house and home. Looking back on this moment 20 years on, uh, there are dangers of romanticisation and of alighting significant differences between the communities involved in these protests, as well as those uh, in the area between the interests of artists um, those who are identified as artists, but also uh, those activists who are drawn to the area, particularly environmental activists, and longer-term residents. Much of the activist artistic energy, in fact, came from those who were veterans of road protests elsewhere in Britain and then moved to the site, rather than the longer-standing artist residents who, um, who had been living there. Levels' involvement in the campaign varied significantly between the artists who were living here um, and it was most often as residents, rather than specifically identifying as artists, that many of them became involved in the campaign. Um, and a number of artists in interviews can talk about tensions actually between uh, longer-term residents and artists, or actually the lack of the use of artistic means by some of the artists living there in terms of the protest action. And some of these more, um, these earlier, quieter, less obviously visible modes of action and participation, risk getting forgotten in, um, in terms of this more vivid iconography of protest associated with Claremont Road. But my focus now, I want to shift more onto um, three different artistic projects that came out of this situation that in different ways critically reflect on issues of uh, home and house at a time of displacement, destruction and domicide. Walking past Claremont Road now, uh, this is how it looks now, it's difficult to recall or imagine what went before. What has become of those who lived here? What resonances remain? How might that urban fabric, so radically transformed, still speak of the stories, memories and loves and losses of those who lived and struggled along this route? These are questions posed by uh, the artist Graham Miller in his sound walk, Linked, which was commissioned by Museum of London and based on all histories of those uh, who lived and, and protested uh, in this area. It's an influential sound art project that's been continuously broadcasting the voices of, um, of residents from 20 transmitters that are located along this route, 
which you can see down on the, the bottom right hand side. Um, since 2003, using equipment designed to last 100 years. If all that was solid in this neighbourhood melted into air, then through Miller's direction, that air is then refilled through radio waves carrying stories, sounds and memories. These may be heard above the roaring traffic as you walk along this route alongside the, uh, the now the motorway, um, borrowing a receiver which is still freely available and hearing those sounds through headphones. I know that if my house was still there, it would be hanging in space above the inside northbound lane. I can still sort of feel myself in that place, that bit of air, the place where I lay down to go to bed, the place that I had showers, and I feel a bit kind of naked, suspended in the air there. This is one of the voices that comes as you're standing by this retaining wall of the motorway. And that bit of air that he's referring to is um, on this site here, above the six lanes of traffic that now scythe through the neighbourhood, and the brick wall just a partial shield. Stories about the protests figure prominently in the broadcasts, but most of the transmissions concern everyday life and, and spaces, stories and scenes told in the present tense, of homes, gardens and neighbours, of ordinary encounters, tensions, arguments, children playing, uh, flowers, snow, mail deliveries, a cat in the window. Miller doesn't naturalise or impose an order on these experiences, but on the contrary, in the broadcast, he interweaves them, fragments them, he loops voices while adding uh, other sounds and music. A total of 120 hours of interviews that were conducted with residents, his been, ended up in smithereens, to use his own word, broken down into fragments of recollection. He intends the broadcast of these fragments to then elicit and connect with other memories and stories, including those of participants on the walk. So they're deliberately fragmented, deliberately elusive, rather than providing whole narratives or stories. Part of an idea of what he calls a renewing the narrative tissue of a neighbourhood in the face of the sterilising force of the motorway. Much of the power of linked, I think, is rooted in the way in which it conjures past realities into the present. Many of the speakers then uh, speak of their memories in the present tense, something that was consciously elicited by Miller's um, interview team. Appeals here then are made to smell and touch as well as to sight and sound, as homes and houses are described in detail, as if they're being walked through now. Perhaps it exists in my brain. Walk up the stairs, the blue bells directly in front of you is the kitchen. Daffodils to the left is the bedroom. Solomon's seal, and then you've got a little set of four stairs. You've got those little set of four stairs. You've got ferns. Bedroom, then another bedroom, then the bathroom. Masses of blue bells, and on the left hand side, primroses and fitted cupboards which go up from the floor to the ceiling. Green finches, you've got donuts, friends, robins. Now, where we put electrics in because they're quite nice. Hedgehogs, foxes. We still kept the gas lights and we could still use them because we didn't trust electricity. I had a mould one. We didn't use wallpaper, but we used wallpaper that were bits and bobs, yeah, so uh, the walls weren't exactly colour-coordinated, wild strawberries and all that, not retro chic, more what you can afford. I enjoyed it, it was a, it was a house which was unconventional and it was a house which was an adventure, it wasn't modern blandness, the house wasn't just bricks and mortar. We rented it from a chap down below us called Uncle Charlie. The breaks between the realities uh, described with the headphones then, and those felt and sensed on the wall, because you're hearing these present tense recollections often, and then confronted with the sights and sounds of the motorway, lend to a feeling of displacement and dislocation. The difficulty then of reinserting the stories that one's hearing, and the stories and memories into that changed landscape 20 years on, echo in a sense those faced by residents when suddenly faced with a void that had been their home, 
following their eviction and the destruction of their houses. And that includes Miller himself, who, along with his partner and their young son, was violently evicted early one morning without warning by riot police after living for 10 years on Grove Green Road. And the trauma involved in that particular moment was one of the reasons why he didn't return to making this work until many years uh, on. So this eviction in, um, in 94 and then returning to this work that was released in 2003. He writes of his former street, I'm utterly unable to fit 10 years of my life into the space it once inhabited. My decade of waking, feeding, working, childbirth, heartbreak, sleep, dreams, meals, convivial moments and isolated thoughts were suddenly without a hook to hang themselves on. The new surface rejected them. Another former resident in one of the interviews broadcast refers to the site of her former home in one of the broadcasts as, you can't even look at anything to recall memories of it. There's nothing to see. The house hasn't become someone else's. It's frozen in time, a memory or, sorry, a moment or a dream. And as the reference to dream here suggests, the tension uh, here between two presents, the present tense observations from the past uh, and the present environment through which one walks never sets into uh, a stable before. That's how things were. That's never sort of conceived of as a stable present. And then after, that is how it is now. Because there's nothing secure or securing about these memories as they're being evoked in these radio waves broadcast in the street. Instead, they lend the route a kind of haunted quality. And that's a sense I'll come back to at the very end. As evicted voices return to shadow and unsettle the present. But the past of which they speak cannot be returned to or held stable. Uh, since, as Marshall Berman puts it in, when he's writing about uh, a modernism of ghosts, it's always in the process of disintegration. As Berman writes, we yearn to grasp it, but it's baseless and elusive. We look back for something solid to lean on, only to find ourselves embracing ghosts. Now, Miller had been part of a thriving um, community of artists in the area whose presence, presence was always precarious, dependent on short-term leases of dilapidated houses that were threatened with destruction. A neighbour who was the artist, um, who was also a friend of his, Cornelia Parker, recalls the remarkable space of what she calls cross-pollinations and collaborations abounding, um, where creativity thrived under imminent eviction. Another neighbour and frequent collaborator with Miller um, was the filmmaker John Smith, and it's actually his voice that we heard um, referring to the um, being suspended, his house being suspended above the motorway. An important figure in British avant-garde independent film coming out of the 60s and 70s scene around the London Filmmakers Co- Cooperative. His work has long worked close to home, uh, both more broadly in East London and specifically Leytonstone, and from his own house, from which many of his films have been shot. In the opening sequences of his film Blight, which was um, a 14-minute composition made between 1994 and 96, um, made with the composer Jocelyn Pook, a Victorian terrace house dismantles as if by itself in the opening scenes. A beam shifts, bricks loosen, masonry falls. Voices of residents are heard, uh, which are fragments of speech, initially almost becoming part of the music. So again, these aren't narratives, they're sort of long sto- um, coherent stories. These are just speech particles in a way. Only when the soundtrack momently, momentarily falls silent and a brick wall topples, to viewers discern through the re- resulting cloud of dust, the workers responsible for slowly, gradually dismantling this particular house. In one scene, uh, a craw of a digger is shown near a rooftop, but it doesn't touch that rooftop, and its brute force remains latent. Demolition instead proceeds by hand, by men who loosen and pull pieces like teeth. Um, and then the pace of the film quickens, the soundtrack builds, and then the insides of emptied houses are suddenly and shockingly exposed. When a glimpse of this wall is first, was wallpaper, sorry, this wall painting is first given, an interview he's heard recalling, it has a living entity of itself, you know, that house has a spirit. 
And when that scene um, reappears, the same interviewee is heard recalling the voice of officialdom. And this is a quote, we are sorry. We are sorry you've got to, we've got to knock your house down. We're sorry you've got to move your mother. We're sorry we've got to destroy your community. And it's only at the end of the film that the location's made more explicit. Uh, this is shot on his, from his house on Colville Road, and it's actually the house next door to his, where this, um, this sudden uh, shocking sort of emergence of the interior is exposed. So at the end of the film, the location becomes explicit, where on metal fencing, uh, words appear in, in succession, filling the frame. And these are all cut across uh, as if by swiping through traffic moving in front of it between each of these uh, frame, frames. Despite slogans then appearing towards the end, it's not a didactic work, even if the music orchestrates the emotions to a degree uncharacteristic of Smith's work. It's through the details of a picture of home-making develops, the discarded objects, kitchen pans, toys, a football, exposed internal spaces, torn wallpaper fluttering in the wind. These are scenes from around his home, as I mentioned, um, and overlaid onto the fragments and detritus, there are fragments of speech that, as in Miller's Linked, are taken from interviews of those people who have been displaced. But these are only fragments and refrains, um, and the people themselves have tellingly vanished, so they don't appear on the screen. I don't really remember as one of those refrains that gets repeated almost again as a kind of musical uh, note. Um, Another recurring line comes from a woman who's recalling fear of spiders. Kill the spiders, kill the spiders for me. And there's a sense here of, of who are those um, spiders who are, being, um, uh, who are being eradicated. And the closing image of the film has her repeat those words as on the screen appears the web of motorways of London, including the newly spun thread of the M11. Living on the same street as Smith in the late 1980s and early 1990s was Alison Marchant, who was the final artist I'll very briefly mention today. Like many artists in the area, her Acme house became a studio which she opened to the public. Um, and in this case, this often involved installations in which photographs and images were overlaid on walls or window frames. And in 1987, so this is some years before the, um, the evictions really start, but on the first house that gets boarded up on Colville Road um, as part of the, this gradual process of, of, um, of the dilapidation of the area before the building work starts. Um, she installed a, a, on that house uh, this work entitled Close to Home, which positions an enlarged family photograph of her, her grandmother, Rose Marchant, and her children standing outside the house 60 years before, standing outside their house, rather, I should say. Sighted on the threshold, the installation was open to the elements, and over the next two years, it gradually uh, bleaches out. As in much of her later work, this early installation, and others are also sighted in, in her home, deployed archival photographs, um, and later she often uses oral history to address working-class women's history in relation to home and work. Her work brings into visibility the traces of lives typically hidden and forgotten in official narratives through a process she describes as memory mapping. The photographs displayed are often private photographs, now blown up and sighted, so they're encountered by people passing by on the street. Um, and, and thereby see that space differently. By installing this image in this street, she creates an affecting response at a time when the street itself is changing, when evictions, bricked-up windows and demolitions will soon wipe away the traces of more recent residents, replacing them with a void into which those residents will then re-struggle to reinsert their memories and their stories of life and home. So I briefly want to say a few words um, by way of, of conclusion um, before it would be really interesting to hear your thoughts in, around some of these themes. But in this presentation, what I've tried to do is to present some artistic practices 
that come out of a highly politicised moment of evictions and demolitions uh, around the motorway construction uh, through this part of East London. And I considered how in different ways they respond to this a sense of home and its unmaking as those spaces are destroyed. As I discussed, some of these align themselves explicitly with political movements um, and forms of direct action, in effect seeking to merge art and life, to um, use art as a way of constructing situations, to interrupt the moment in its sense of, of a kind of um, process of moving into the future which is inevitable. And in which creativity, humour and invention were strong hallmarks. The idea here then was to make the road, as, as I mentioned, as difficult, expensive, time-consuming and politically unpopular as possible, while also significantly performing and celebrating another way of living in the here and now. So although there's a sense of loss here, which, around which it's politically um, trying to organise, it's also a sense of um, the present moment being lived differently, uh, thereby imagining some kind of alternate future. Home was central to this practice, which appealed to a rhetoric of homes, not roads, as it pointed to the emptying out of houses at a time of significant homelessness. So this was part of the political strategy. And positioned that within wider discourses of environmental destruction and the domination of urban space by the interests of private profit and state power. Um, and uh, in the dramatic case of Claremont Road, then, it's less about as I mentioned, a defence of existing homes, which by then were widely recognised to be uh, inevitably going to be destroyed, than about the reuse and transformation of those houses through which alternative practices of homemaking and remaking could be developed. Now, from perspective 20 years on, those actions might easily depict as having failed, uh, politically speaking, in the sense that, of course, the road um, was built. And yet in part because of that interruption of the road-building progress, um, which was significantly delayed through these actions and the, pro- the costs significantly spiralled through this time. It was important in shifting wider attitudes to highway construction in the UK. A, a wider questioning about the, the logic of these automobilities, uh, particularly in the urban context. And significant to this process was that imaginative artistic use of powerful images and moments, which then recirculated through news networks and underground media. Among the legacies of this particular political moment was the reforming of Reclaim the Streets. Um, Many of the activists involved in Claremont Road um, then became centrally involved in Reclaim the Streets, um, which undertook related strategies uh, through interventions that challenged the hold of car culture and capitalism more widely in terms of intervening around what the proper use of streets might be. And again, there, this temporary interruption of the street as both a site of commerce and a site of, of um, a machine for traffic was very much part of their tactics. I've also, also been considering other practices by artists living in the area that might be regarded as political, but in quite different ways. As I discussed, these artists were part of a large group who had been drawn to the area by the opportunities opened up by the impending construction, and whose work was profoundly affected by that situation as they experienced the changes and were eventually evicted themselves. I've been interested in some of the insights here that they might offer in addressing the unmaking and destruction of home. While they're concerned with what was once a home, they do not offer simply a nostalgic or closed view of that past, as if it were something that could be simply restored or returned to. Rather, as I've suggested, they pose questions about memory and about the elusiveness of that past. Um, I mentioned that line, don't really remember, that echoes through um, Smith's Blight. But it's also actually a, a, a phrase that recurs through some of Miller's um, sound uh, broadcasts as well, the sense of trying to locate particular memories in, a, in time as well as space. And it's also about... Um, they also raise questions here about the qualities of places and home that we might think of in terms of a sense of haunting. To refer to places as haunted in this sense is to question 
firm and neat dividing lines between their pasts, their presents and their futures. Ghosts unsettle categories, for those they may seem to be from the past, they do not belong to it, just as their position between the visible and the invisible, the phenomenal and the non-phenomenal, life and death. Ghosts suddenly appear, they surprise or shock, while being neither fully present uh, nor absent. In part, this is a sense of time being out of joint, which is to use Derrida's term that he takes from Hamlet. But also there's a sense here of the significance of, of, of the spatial qualities of this time being out of joint. As Steve Pyle puts it, they destabilise the flow of time of a place and register the dislocation of urban times and spaces, such that it's possible to speak of space and time as being out of joint. Um, that sense of time and space is out of joint is one that's central to Miller's linked, where the reality as it is, the highway now running through that neighbourhood, is continually questioned through the presence of voices and sounds speaking of another present. And on that present that's being evoked, often uh, dates recur, um, rather than being part of a linear narrative of, of a kind of linear history these are dates that circle almost on top of each other, this sense of a colliding uh, sense of the past in the present. But it's also there in Smith's Blight, with its sense of the life of houses and then their death, and in the past figures situated by Marchant in doorways or in other works on the windows uh, of buildings. And so in this sense, I think what's being evoked is not simply, as I mentioned, that uh, senses of the past of those homes, but also questions about and homemaking also in the future, where we might think of, uh, with Marshall Berman, just to, to return to him finally, um, that sense of, uh, of thinking about those who go on fighting to make ourselves at home in this world, even, as he writes, as the homes we have made, the modern street, the modern spirit, go on melting into air. Thank you.